0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, today's the day. It's Election Day. Alan Carter of Focus Ontario on Global News and also Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken joined me to go over the closing hours of the campaign. So how difficult is this decision going to be for Canadians at the polls? Well, we'll talk to Peter Grafe, professor of uh, political science at McMaster University, about that. And this week, General Motors and the UAW will try to ratify a tentative deal. Workers at the Oshawa plant have been called back, but not everything is carved in stone just yet. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Of course, uh, election, election, and more election coming up today. Uh, This is the day, of course, that Canada will choose a new government. And uh, from all intents and purposes, it seems like it's going to be a long evening, uh, because it could well be uh, until we get the uh, results from British Columbia that we find out exactly who's going to be the governing party right now, and of course all the machinations that could result from that. Uh, Our global coverage tonight will be, as always, extensive. Uh, One of the folks involved in that, of course, is our good friend Alan Carter, who is the host of uh, Focus on Ontario and the co-host of Global News at 5.30 and 6. And he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Alan. How are you doing today? You there, Alan? Hi, Alan. Oh,
1: hey, Bill. Sorry about that.
0: Good, good. No, we got finally hooked up. We're good to go. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about what's going to be a very long evening. I think for an awful lot of us, they're going to be involved in the coverage on this thing tonight. Uh, you've covered an awful lot of elections over the years, and I, I don't know that I've ever seen one as, as vitriolic and 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 roller coasterish. I guess is maybe the, the apt description here as we've seen over the last forty days.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that you know we saw polling that suggested that the, a large amount of Canadians felt that anything that any messages that they heard this election were negative. And I think there's an overwhelming feeling. We have not been particularly well served by this election campaign, and I think that's a pox on all their houses.
0: Well, and, and I I think it's caused a great deal of confusion, and obviously voters are very frustrated right now. Uh, and I anticipated, and I think a lot of the folks I've talked to over the last 40 days have anticipated that there's probably going to be a low voter turnout. But then we find out that in the advance poll last weekend, uh, higher than expected turnout. It, it, again, it's just it's very difficult to read this, isn't it?
1: It is difficult, and, and, you, and you wonder about, well, you know, we've changed the way that we can do advanced pollings, and we've made it a lot easier, a lot more accessible, longer hours on advanced polling. So it, is that behind the jump in advanced polling numbers? Or are you right? Are the pollsters who have suggested, well, turnout's not going to be that great because people aren't all that engaged? It's just t- it's It's really tough to know. And then if you're a pollster, if you're a prognosticator, what's keeping you up is especially in the 905 and the 416 how are those vote splits going to work out so i mean you know is the ndp vote going to show up enough that it will siphon enough progressive votes away that in a bunch of ridings where conservatives don't normally win they might win and what does that mean or conversely is the usual thing that happens in elections which is you know, the NDP polls really well right up until Election Day, and then their vote kind of evaporates right at the uh, at, at the polling station. It's going to be very interesting to watch that tonight.
0: There's so many different uh, subplots to this whole thing, there, and you bang on. And one of them, of course, is in Quebec, where I think at the beginning of this campaign, uh, many of the, uh, the experts thought, well, the Liberals look pretty solid there. They're going to probably take a, the majority of the seats. But who anticipated the rise of the bloc in this election?
1: Well, you know, and that's really a, a, an extension of the last provincial election in many ways. And, and reading Quebec, I mean, you know, you have to go to other experts for that in a way, because, I mean, if you live in English Canada, it is a completely a distinct society in so many ways, and, it, and politically as well. And we've seen this in the past where, where Quebec tends to move independent of the rest of the country and move as a block. Uh, and in this case, they're going to move to the block. And the, at dissolution, the bloc had 10 seats. Most, most estimates now put them in the mid-20s, possibly as high as 30. And that means they're going to take seats from everybody. They're going to take seats from the liberals. They're going to take seats from the conservatives, what little seats the conservatives have, and the NDP. And as a result of that, it means that there is no path to majority anywhere else in the rest of the country because it's just too split in the rest of English Canada, and then, you know, in, in Quebec, it pretty much all goes to the block.
0: Notwithstanding what's gone on in Quebec, though, Alan, I guess one of the things that I, I'm noticing about this, and we've seen that with the national numbers anyway, and you've covered that extensively, of course, every evening on Global, uh, is is the polarization that seems to be occurring, uh, west versus east, uh, and and the the anger and the vitriol that seems to be going back and forth. I mean, it, it just seems as if the country is much more divided than it is unified at this point.
1: I I think I agree with that. I, I mean, I wish I could I, I wish I could offer a, you know an alternate theory that we're not as divided. Um, I I don't think that we're as politically divided in some ways th- as we are. Geographically, because I don't think that Ontario—I don't think we don't have a sense here in Ontario of just how angry Alberta is. Alberta is ticked, and they are ticked not just at the Liberals, but they're ticked at the rest of the country that they believe is standing in the way of economic progress and is costing them jobs and wealth. And you can imagine if you lived in a particular region of this country where you've—you know—you saw well the rest of the country is conspiring against us. So, you know, that we can't have jobs and we can't have homes like the rest of them. I mean, it's not going to take long for that anger to really fester. And if we end up with a liberal government again, if that is what happens, you know, there's already been kind of musings and talk about Western alienation, and you're going to hear a lot more of it.
0: Well, I think we're going to hear a lot of that tonight, too, as we start seeing some of those results from Saskatchewan and Alberta, especially. Uh, Let's talk in our remaining moments here. Let's talk a little bit about the the 905 and the 416. Uh, As the saying usually goes in just about every election here in uh, in Ontario, whether it's provincial or federal, uh, as those two area codes go, so goes Ontario. That's where the majority of the seats are, and that's obviously where the leaders have been focusing. Do you get any read at all on, on how this is going to shake out tonight?
1: I don't think that there's any way that you can really predict. I, I, I think that, I mean, it, it's possible, and, and Lord knows we have seen pollsters be absolutely dead wrong in the past. I'm going to give you my theory in just a second, but here's what, the, here's what most of the more informed or, or better educated prognosticators than me think, which is that it will be, it'll be a patchwork. So you'll get the NDP picking up seats from the Liberals in Toronto. You'll get the Conservatives picking up seats from the Liberals in the 905. Think places like, yeah, you know Burlington and yeah, some of those are already conservative, but some of those will flip back if they are Liberals. And then, and then you'll get the NDP. Will you know the Liberals will still hold in places? They're going Liberals will hold in Scarborough. They'll hold. They'll do well maybe in Brampton. Um, So it'll be a patchwork. But here's my theory. I don't think that the polls accurately reflect the strength of the liberal vote. I think that going into the polls today, like we talked about, I think a lot of that NDP vote's going to kind of collapse under one thing, which is the progressives out there, their number one motivation when they vote, according to the polls, is to stop the conservatives, not to punish the liberals. And I think no matter how tipped people are at the Liberals, if you find yourself center, center left, you might say at the end of the day, "Ah, yeah, I don't like that guy, but I got to stop sheer. I'm going to mark a grit on my ballot."
0: I, I think we're in for some surprises tonight. I know everybody's saying it's close, and I don't. I don't disagree with that. But I, I agree with you on on that point, Alan. I think a, a few of these, especially in the four one six and the nine oh five, uh, I think we're going to f- see maybe some incumbents knocked over, or we might see, as we said, uh, you know, some support for the liberals that just hasn't been showing up in the polls in the last couple of days.
1: Here's my prediction: is that we're going to get a minority. But we're going to get a minority with the liberals having the most seats so that this whole... we're going to wring our hands all day long today about, you know, whether or not Justin Trudeau should have the right to meet the House uh, as the incumbent prime minister. That's what the rules say. You know, forget about what Andrew Shear says about tradition and that those who win the most seats should be able to have the uh, opportunity to form government. The rules say that Trudeau gets the opportunity. But I think at the end of the day, when the dust settles tomorrow... I think it's going to be a minority, and I think it's going to be a a liberal minority with the liberals with the most seats.
0: Well, we'll uh, be watching, of course, and listening here uh, with Global News and the coverage tonight, and you're going to be a big part of that as well. Alan, uh, get some rest this afternoon. I think it's going to be a long one today.
1: All right, I'll have another triple express. There we go.
0: <laughs> Thanks again. Alan Carter, of course, uh, the host of Focus Ontario and uh, co host of Global News at five thirty and 6. Uh, another part of our coverage tonight, uh, Donna Friesen, by the way, is going to be anchoring the coverage here on uh, CH and Global News. But David Aiken's going to be a big part of that, too, chief political correspondent. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show right now. Morning, David. How are you today? Morning.
2: I'm pretty good. I mean, uh, I'm feeling a little guilty because uh, I've been in the same hotel room now for about uh, four or five nights, just up the road here in Toronto as we get ready for our election special. But my colleagues on the campaign planes, I mean, they've literally gone across the country in the last two days. And our colleague, Abigail Beeman, who's with the Trudeau Liberals, yeah. well, her day started yesterday at about... 8 a.m. Pacific in Vancouver, and she just landed an hour ago in Montreal. Her day just finished an hour ago. That's the kind of day you have when you're on a plane on the last day of a campaign, campaigning all day, all night, and then they flew overnight to uh, Montreal. So, as I say, I've been in the same hotel room for three nights. You know, I feel great.
0: I, I hope she's racking up the air miles while she's doing all this crisscrossing across the country, uh, and, and and as we we're just saying with Alan Carter though, David, the, the frustration here I think for the voters right now is is the the polls are so close right now that it, it, I'm not so sure it's because they're ticked off at anybody or that the, the 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 support is just evenly spread out. There's I, I think a, still a number of question marks that we're not going to get answered until late into this evening. I would think.
2: Well, I think, so, yes, we're definitely not going to get answers too late in the night. The polls close, of course, in Ontario at around 9.30 in the evening. And the, uh, in fact, remember, everybody, the polls open uh, any minute now at 9.30 in the morning. Yeah. Uh, so you got to get out and vote. But the polls don't close in B.C. until 10.00. And it is going to be a very close race, and I agree with what Alan said. We're in for a minority government. And as a result, I think everybody's going to have to wait up to see what B.C. does. And I talked to my British Columbia friends, and they've always complained that, you know, the networks have all called the election, it's a true-to-majority, you know, an hour before B.C. polls even close. Not this time. I think it will be apparent that we're in for a minority government pretty early on in the night. But we are, I don't think, or there's, there's a possibility we will not know majority minority until BC. We certainly, I don't think, may know who the plurality of the votes or the seats are until BC counts. BC's very much in play. The polls there have the conservatives ahead. And then it's a, you know, some polls have the NDP ahead and the liberals in third. Some have the liberals in second and the NDP in third. But everybody's pretty close. And then there's the Green Party factor once you get onto a few seats in Vancouver Island and that could probably take away seats from the new democrats so bc is going to be probably more important than we've ever seen it from an ontario perspective and then in the ontario perspective you know it's all about the 905 there's 30 seats from oshawa right around to my 905 start stops in burlington that's as far west as it goes mm-hmm. that's karina Gould's seat the liberal that 905 the the best intelligence i have at this point in time that most of the liberal seats on the west side of 905. Take Highway 400, draw a line, and now you come through Bramptons, Mississauga, Oakville's, Burlington. The Liberals are feeling pretty good. Brampton, for sure, and some of Mississauga. The Oakville's are going to be in play. It's going to be a fight, the two Oakville seats. I think uh, Karina Gould is also in a pretty much of a dogfight in Burlington. But then if you go on the east side of the of the 400, into York and Durham regions, Conservatives and Liberals there tell me that Conservatives are feeling a little more confident about picking up some Liberal seats there. Now, in 2015, that 905 went wave, all almost all red, mm-hmm. save for Thornhill and one Markham seat. In 2011, when Harper won, boom, it went all blue. It went in a wave that way. If it goes in a wave tonight towards either party, well, then that's it. That's the party that I think is going to definitely win, uh, win this election. I don't think it's going to wave. Every every, uh, every bit of data I've got says uh, there's going to be some and, uh, you know, as I say, Burlington, one of the Oakvilles might uh, flip to the blue team. I think it's going to be a bit of a mixed bag.
0: David, you you mentioned the Greens a, a little while ago. A lot of people at the beginning of this election thought this was going to be a breakthrough election for the Greens. They were finally going to put their stamp on, on the next parliament. That, that support seems to have fizzled, though.
2: Uh, it's, it's, it's as strong as it began in BC. Uh, it never ever really sort of poked its head up in Ontario. I mean, sort of green center, the green central in Ontario is Guelph, just up the road from where you yep. are, Bill. Yeah. Uh, where of course Mike Schreiner is the provincial MPP. Um, I'm not sure that, that Guelph is gonna move away from being liberal. Uh, that's probably the likely outcome there. And there's really nowhere else in, in Ontario where I see any sort of green surge in Atlantic Canada. They had polled as high as I don't know, seventeen uh, percent or so in during this campaign. But in the last few days, that seems to have faded. They're they're in the double digits still, but uh, you know maybe ten or eleven. Outside chance, I think they t- pick up a seat in Atlantic Canada. But you're right, they're not in the in, in the minority government scenarios which we sort of uh, are modeling right now. They don't hold a balance of power. Um, it's really going to be the the Bloc Quebecois. Uh, you know, it's going to have a huge night. They started this with 10 seats. They could finish with 30, maybe even 40, uh, finish more more than the NDP. And so as we start talking about what can get done in a minority parliament, uh, we're really going to be talking about, you know, what, what is the BQ on? What, what, what's their red lines? What's core for them? And we're going to be talking about the NDP who will say no pipeline, no how. Um, You know, this is the sort of discussions I think we're going to have uh, within a couple hours of the polls closing.
0: Uh, Very quickly, Alan was just mentioning that he thought there might be some strategic voting going on today. Uh, You know, the anti-Trudeau element, the the stop-shear element, I mean, we've heard of both of those over the the course of this campaign. Do you think that's actually going to start happening, or are people actually just going to vote for who they think might be the best candidate?
2: Um, I think people are... well, who knows? I don't know that there's going to be a big element of strategic voting. I think Jugmeet Singh has run uh, a better campaign than uh, everyone thought he would, uh, which is sort of not saying much, but he did run a pretty good campaign. I think people connected to him. And Singh, in the last few days, has been doing what I think is smart in terms of inoculating himself against what trudeau has been doing trudeau of course has been trying to scare every progressive voter saying oh my god if you don't vote for me then we'll get that scary andrew sheer and singh has been saying I'm, I'm not voting for a pipeline uh you can stay with me singh has been saying hey that guy trudeau he's not he's not so progressive look at all his broken promises on the progressive side of the ledger from 2015 and so i think to a degree that has inoculated him i think there may be some pickups Uh, for the NDP, and I'll be, you know, looking at one riding in your neighborhood, that's the Hamilton-Stony Creek riding, where Bob Bratton is the liberal incumbent, and, uh, you know, the NDP could pick that seat up. Um, Hamilton Center, of course, David Christopherson is packing in after uh, what seems like forever in politics. (laughs) I mean, he's been in that riding provincially and federally forever, and I think uh, think the NDP are going to hold that one, too.
0: Uh, We'll be watching the coverage and listening for it here on 900 CHML, and you're going to be a big part of that. David, thanks so much for this today. Okay, thanks. David Akin, uh, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News. And as we mentioned, he and Alan Carter and, uh, and all of the, the global crew, especially Donna Friesen, who's going to be anchoring the coverage uh, starting uh, at 9 o'clock tonight. And the pregame show, as, as it were, our good friend Alex Pearson, of course, is going to be hosting that. Extensive coverage. But you have a role to play in this too, and that means get out and vote today.
1: Listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: It's uh, been a roller coaster of an election campaign. Joining us to talk about uh, that and uh, what might be happening later on tonight is uh, Peter Gray, professor of political science at McMaster University. Peter, how are you doing this morning? Great, thanks. Uh, always great anticipation when one of these things come along. Elections, of course. And uh, the, the the numbers on this, I'm just looking at the latest uh, tracking we've got here now. From uh, which one is this now? This is the Forum poll. Uh, Liberals at 31.7, Conservatives at 29.9. And those are national numbers, but as you and I have talked about in the past, the the regional numbers and where those those votes are and where that support is uh, really is going to, I think, tell the tale tonight.
3: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is the distribution. Uh, We know that uh, the Conservative Party is running at about 60 or 70 percent in Alberta. They don't need that many... Uh, to elect people but uh it, and so certainly that means that uh, their vote may be thinner in other places despite a national average and so I mean it really will play a lot in terms of where those parties are doing, particularly in the uh, the nine o five so the ridings around our area, similarly in the lower mainland of b c uh, the parties are pretty close, and so a percentage or two one way or the other, could make a pretty big difference in seats. Uh, I mean, we had, for instance, Eco's coming out yesterday with its predictions of the election, which were completely different than the others, and mm-hmm. that was based simply on the them having the Liberals a bit higher in the GTA, or mostly, and and in the, around Montreal. So, I mean, a small small swing in one of those areas, uh, you know, uh, can make a huge difference. So the point isn't whether he's right or not, but more to just illustrate that it doesn't take a huge movement to have a very different result in terms of potential seat counts.
0: With that in mind, are you surprised by what happened in Quebec during this campaign? I mean, I think at the beginning of this, a lot of people thought that the NDP might get wiped out. That might still happen. I don't, we really don't know. But the rise of the bloc, I think, is one of the, the great subplots to this whole thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, that was a possibility at the start of the campaign, but, uh, I mean, I think people saw it as a, a bit of an unknown that uh, Quebecers weren't really won over to one party or another. They weren't sure about Andrew Scheer. Uh, they weren't entirely happy with Justin Trudeau. You're right, the NDP was uh, really low. Uh, you know, the bloc was coming up, but nowhere near where they are now. So, I, th- you know, I think in this campaign we have seen that the NDP was able to regain a bit of its uh, strength in, in the province, uh, Although, you know, it's current polling numbers uh probably won't elect a lot of people, but go back 20 years and they would have been <laughs> overjoyed, it's probably running mm-hmm. about 13 times higher than they were in the early 2000s. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I think really voters, if they're going with the block this time, a lot of it has to do with the fact that none of the leaders really spoke to them in a way. And so uh, a lot of voters, I think, are parking their votes there and uh, makes it kind of a comfortable spot for them as well, I think, to say, well, we'll be on the side of protecting uh, our current provincial government's interest by electing the bloc, because the bloc seems to be willing uh, to defend the decisions that that government makes.
0: Is, is that essentially then a, a none-of-the-above vote, then? Because then they're not crazy about the NDP, the Liberals, or the Conservatives, and they feel safe with that bloc vote?
3: I think so, although, I mean, I mean we're in a strange moment in
0: Quebec, I think,
3: where, uh, you know, the traditional sovereignist uh, movement is really weak um but that where nevertheless i think Quebecers are feeling the need to have some form of collective voice and they've really chosen uh this policy a popular policy of the new uh, CAQ government uh around uh the wearing of religious uh, religious symbols as uh, something that makes them different and makes them stand out and so they want to make sure that that's protected and i think they feel that by having the block in Ottawa it uh, provides an incentive for the other parties, uh, you know, not to move against that. And I think we saw that in the debates where all the all the parties, where it was pretty clear that they weren't that happy about the law. I mean, Mr. Sheer and Mr. Singh, uh, you know, weren't willing to, you know, they might speak out against it in Mr. Singh's case, but, you know, wouldn't actually do anything about it. And the strongest point of view came from Justin Trudeau, who said maybe, perhaps, uh, in the right circumstances, he wouldn't entirely rule out doing something about it, <laughs> which is, I mean, miles away from it. You could have imagined his father in that situation, uh, you know, would have been castigating the Quebec nationalists and and running a very different kind of form of campaign. So the the success of the Bloc, in a way, I think has been important in giving incentives to the other parties uh, not to speak out about it, uh, instead hoping to find a way to seduce those voters uh, that the bloc has brought together down the road. And so, yeah, I think that's part of why the why uh, Quebecers have rallied to the bloc this time.
0: Uh, we talk about Alberta and the alienation that they seem to feel, and Jason Kenney, I think, is doing his level best to try to fan the flames of discontent, uh, especially when it comes to to the, f- the federal Liberals in this situation. Uh, there's even talk about separation talks and, and separation agreements and uh, if, in fact, the Liberals are re-elected. Is, is that a, a possibility or a probability? Given the rhetoric that's coming out of Alberta right now, I think it's, it's got a lot of people concerned.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, the rhetoric is quite inflamed, and I mean, I wouldn't at this point think that there's a lot behind it. Uh, it's also, I think, objectively a kind of strange view to take, given the investments that the Trudeau government has made and, you know, particularly buying a pipeline to try and get uh, Alberta oil to market. Um so I mean the provincial government is acting in a way that uh, one might consider irresponsible in terms of planning, fanning the flames of this kind of discourse. Um, you know, but should a Liberal government get reelected, uh Mr Kenny will have to work with Mr Trudeau if he wants to get pipelines built or uh ensure, you know, further development of uh, the uh the oil sands, which seems to be his priority. And so, you know, ultimately, uh, creating really negative <laughs> relationships with the federal government uh, is a bit of a, a you know, self-limiting uh, issue for for an Alberta premier. He may not pay a price with the electorate because uh, his party seems wildly popular and it's, there's not a clear alternative on the scene. But uh, in terms of actually achieving things that Albertans might want, uh, having entirely negative relationships with the federal government, particularly based on, I think, a misreading of what that government has and has not done, uh, it's, it's likely not a good strategy.
0: Well, and that's I, I find that rather interesting too. That uh, when you look at the the way this government's tried to get this thing done, and th- I mean the courts have been holding them up, and and maybe they haven't been as efficient as they possibly could be on this. But uh, the track record basically is that uh, th- these things are pretty difficult to get done, and it's not going to happen overnight. But I, I guess obviously that's the politics of it, isn't it, Peter? They just want to play up to that right now. I mean, obviously he's trying to work w- as best he can to try to get into sheer elected. Uh, but the leaders themselves are, and the personality of the leaders themselves uh, has has really become a factor in this election campaign. Obviously, I think the the, the, the things about uh, Justin Trudeau are pretty self evident—the blackface and and of course uh, Andrew Shear trying to resurrect the SNC Lavellin uh, debate once again. Uh, but Shear's st- kind of stepped in it a couple of times too, hasn't he?
3: Yeah, I mean, to me, it was quite astounding uh, in, that, uh, in that last debate where he got up and called uh, Mr. Trudeau a fraud and a liar. Uh, in the same week that uh, it had been revealed that he had been hiding the fact of being a a dual citizen and that certain aspects of his relatively thin pre-politics resume uh, didn't quite add up in terms of his claims to be you know, in in the insurance industry. So, yeah, I mean, I think that didn't hurt, uh, that didn't help Andrew Scheer. Uh, And I would say at the end of the campaign, a lot of Canadians still don't have a really good sense of who he is. Uh, but they nevertheless are a bit wary and that's probably not where you want to be as a leader. You want to have kind of introduced uh your position and, and uh have gained some trust and confidence uh in the Canadian electorate. I mean we had that uh, interesting event on the weekend where people were, you know, chanting walk him up about uh Justin Trudeau yeah. and Mr Shear said, No, we don't say that, we say vote him out and uh you know, I had that been the Andrew Shear who'd shown up for the campaign, uh the Conservatives might actually be in a stronger situation now. I mean, in a way, it showed his capacity uh, to lead. But uh, for the rest of the campaign, uh, it's not clear that uh, he had many defining moments where where he stood out. And, you know, the moments that uh, we might remember more are him having a tough time answering the question about whether or not they hired a certain vendor or you know whether he had signed up for the draft and and questions like that. It was, it was much more uh, being on the defensive rather than uh, having his own vision.
0: You know, Peter, when you look at these polls, especially between the liberals and conservatives, and it's so very close, and it's gone back and forth over the last couple of weeks, especially. Uh, do you get the sense that, that the popularity of those two parties is is not because of the leaders but maybe in spite of the leaders that they still seem to be neck and neck i mean because they've they've both tripped and fell th- uh, numerous times during this campaign yet they still seem to be uh, close uh, you know it's within mere percentage points really
3: yeah i mean it is interesting that at the the percentages are at i mean we'll see what happens in the ballot box but you know they've been you know bouncing around in you know 30 31% range which, I mean, historically, those are disastrous results for both parties. Uh, you know, the Conservatives at 31%, uh, that's about the as low as they go. Uh, you know, the Liberals, likewise, don't elect governments at <laughs> 31%, and yet here we are, the, they're sort of tied for the lead at those percentages. So it's maybe an indication that Canadians, uh, you know, there's a lot who still continue to identify with those parties, but the, the people who aren't hardcore one to them are looking to other places, like the Green Party or the NDP this time and so you know we might also reflect on our electoral system whether we want a system where we might elect a a, a majority government tonight with like 33 or 34% of the vote you know one voter in three making that choice uh, so i mean i think the the weakness of the two historically strong parties their incapacity to to grow beyond a base of about one third of the electorate you know, maybe makes us think, you know, whether electoral system is the best for making decisions. So go back to what we were saying at the beginning, if a swing of two or three percent can make the difference between, uh, you know, electing, uh, you know, a government as a minority or as a majority, or maybe even having the other party as a minority government is... uh, uh, it's a pretty fine line to make uh, such a momentous decision when, you know, ultimately it's a relatively small number of voters changing their views.
0: Peter, what do you see happening locally? I mean, we've got one open seat, really, Dave Christofferson's seat, but, although there seems to be a favourite there. But I'm hearing from, and I've talked to all three of the major parties here, that, oh, it's neck and neck in all of these writings, and some of the incumbents could really be in trouble. Uh, what do you what do you see happening tonight here in the Hamilton area?
3: Uh, well, as a political scientist, I predict the past. <laughs> 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 But, I mean, I've been hearing the same. Uh, I've been hearing the same, that Hamilton Mountain, which, uh, you know, under uh, Chris Charlton was an NDP lock, is maybe a bit more open this time, although, you know, do the votes get divided three ways with, uh, you know, the popularity of the Conservative Party, which has often been fin- finishing third in that riding? Uh, Hamilton East Stony Creek, uh, you know, again, the sense that there maybe the NDP can win that back from the Liberals, but it's a different geography than when they held it before. There's been a loss of the seats between, uh, sorry, of the votes... Uh, voters between uh, Ottawa Street and uh, Kenilworth, which usually was pretty strong for the NDP, so you know it's really hard to tell. You know, so seats that were won closely by the Liberals last time, you can always say that was Justin Trudeau's best day. He won't be doing; they won't be doing as well today, and maybe fall back to the other party. But you also have an incumbent's advantage that has changed over time. So, yeah, I suspect, uh, particularly for Hamilton East, Stony Creek, and Hamilton Mountain, we'll be seeing pretty tight races. Uh, I suspect, uh, you know, things in Hamilton, West Ancaster, Dundas, uh, as well as Flamborough, Grandbrook, to probably uh, favor the incumbents. Although, again, until people have gone and put their ballots in the box, none of that's decided.
0: What about Hamilton Centre? Uh, as I say, the vacant seat, uh, Matthew Green, the former councillor for that area, uh, is the NDP candidate. Uh, I'm hearing it's much closer than a lot of people thought it might be.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's quite possible. I mean, I, th- I think the Green Party... Uh, has had a very strong campaign in that riding that might be enough to uh... you know put the liberals over the top Um, you know but it i mean i think it's really it's really hard to tell and then there's such a division i think even within that riding where uh... you know where matthew green was former city councilor he has a pretty uh... solid base of support uh... in some other parts of the riding, he's maybe less well-known uh... you know as much as we we've seen him as a kind of uh... very public figure in hamilton for a lot of people who aren't following uh... local politics uh, in the west end of that ward and part- of that uh, riding in particular, they, they may have you know, less knowledge of, of who he is, and uh, that may hurt his campaign.
0: Let's talk about leadership. Uh, this is a, an opportunity for change, and of course when the dust settles and uh, we finally find out who's going to be governing the country and just how that's going to roll out, uh, if it is going to be a minority government, uh, it's usually an, a, an opportunity for the leaders of the political parties to have a sober second thought, and, well, do I really want to continue to do this? Uh, Stephen Harper resigned shortly after he was defeated by Justin Trudeau. He sat around in the Commons for a while, but eventually did resign. Paul Martin resigned on election night when he lost in 2006. Uh, is this is this going to be the final hurrah for some of these party leaders, do you think, tonight? I think
3: that's quite possible. Uh, I mean, certainly, um, you know, the Conservative Party tends to eat its leaders if they don't win. So, you know, whether, uh, whether Andrew Scheer is able to win or not tonight will probably do a lot to determine his future.
0: Well, Peter Uh, Peter McKay's already kicking around there. I mean, he's kind of in the shadows there, already with the hook. uh, Yeah, and I I don't
3: think Jason Kenny was uh, campaigning in the GTA and in Manitoba simply to help Andrew Shear. I think (laughs) it was also uh, to prepare his own uh, potential run. So, yeah, Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, if Andrew Shear, I think, does have to win tonight or come close enough that he's a player in the Commons and the Conservatives can't afford to go into a you know, a leadership race and, and not be able to, to play a role in the Commons as a way to new leaders. So, I mean, I think those would be, those would be his hopes in that situation. I mean, for Justin Trudeau, again, I think uh, if he doesn't win, I suspect some knives will come out and say that he's had his time. Uh, but again, if it's uh, a close minority situation, he might be able to, to buy some more time if he decides he wants to stick around.
0: Mead Singh, of course, is the new guy. This is his first federal election, and he has probably exceeded expectations in this campaign.
3: Yeah, I would think so. I mean, really, uh, he's at the start of this campaign, he was about 13% in the polls. He's about you know five or six points higher than that now. Uh, in many ways, taking the NDP to a place where it took Jack and Leighton about three elections to get to, in terms of percentage-wise. So, In a way, uh, I would say he's had a successful election in bringing back together uh, a traditional NDP base of about a fifth of the electorate and appealing uh, in a significant way, particularly to younger voters. And so I think, uh, again, uh, barring some kind of catastrophe tonight, uh, he's fairly comfortable as a leader. And the question will be more whether he can continue to appeal to Canadians when they get to know him better, right? It's easy to, to say, here's someone who speaks in a straightforward manner and is speaking to me and it doesn't seem like all these other politicians uh... but after one has been in the public eye for a while uh, you know regardless of how one comports oneself people begin to get a bit more skeptical and and see people as uh... just you know, conniving politicians so i think his challenge will be in uh, uh, taking a good result and finding a way to to move forward and sustain the uh, popularity he seems to have among the Canadian
0: population. What about Elizabeth May? I mean, there were some strong rumors at the beginning of this campaign that this might even be a breakthrough campaign for the Greens, uh, not just uh, on B.C. coast, but over on the East Coast as well. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. Is it? Is it time for the Greens to be looking for new leadership after this?
3: Well, uh, my sense was that back when uh, she offered Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, the Green leadership back in the spring, uh Saying if she wanted it, she would step aside. I think it was kind of clear that she was more or less at at the end of her period uh, as leader of of the party. I mean, it's an uh, incredibly difficult task to be a parliamentarian, but also trying to make a party live in 338 ridings when you know it's marginal in many of them. And so uh, we've also seen her own internal difficulties in 2015 with the men's right movement, and subsequently with. Uh, Uh, the BDS movement. uh, It's been complicated and difficult for Elizabeth May, and I wouldn't be surprised if she said she's done her almost 15 years now and uh, be willing to pass that off to someone
0: else. Well, we'll see. Uh, We've been surprised before in these elections, and we'll see what happens tonight or early tomorrow morning, I guess, as the case might be. Peter, thanks so much for this. Always a pleasure getting you on the program. You're welcome. Enjoy this evening. Peter Grafe, uh, political science professor at MacArthur University.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Uh, It's going to be an exciting time uh, later this week when uh, General Motors workers south of the border uh, go to vote on uh, the deal that has been proposed now for General Motors. Of course, they've been on strike for some time, and that's had an impact, a negative impact, even uh, on General Motors on this side of the border. Uh, And judging by some of the comments on social media and some of the comments from some of the the striking workers right now, uh, the ratification of this thing is not a slam dunk. In fact, it may go the other way. Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University has been tracking this story. He joins us on the Bill Keller show. Hi Marvin, how are you doing today?
4: I am great, Bill.
0: Good, you voted already?
4: I, I actually voted a couple of weeks ago uh, because I thought today might be a busy day for me, so I took advantage of one of the advanced
0: polls. Excellent. Good stuff. Okay. And uh, F, that's great, too. And uh, we saw those numbers actually higher than the usual. So the,
4: yeah, Absolutely, but- Bill. Uh, I'm not sure if the average person knows. 4.7 million people have already voted in uh, advanced polls. That's up from 3.6 million four years ago. Now, I'm hoping what that means is there's a lot more interest in this election, so we may see the number of people voting get to the 70% level, maybe even the 75% level, as opposed to just people finding the day was inconvenient for them and coming out early. So we'll see tonight what the final tally is.
0: Well, and that's why I'm always in anticipation of you know what might happen and not, uh, because the polls all indicate this is going to be close. The polls all indicate this is going to be a, a minority government, probably, but the polls have been wrong before. Uh, and, and you know, when you talk to the quote unquote experts or the pundits, I mean, as Peter Gray from McMaster told us a little while ago, he says poli-sci professors are great at predicting the past. Uh, I don't sure anybody's really good at predicting the future, especially in an election like this.
4: Well, and, and we should talk about GM, but but quickly on oh, we, this. Yeah, we are. But Bill, I, I have noticed in the last three or four elections, both in Canada and the United States. The polls seem to be out by a rather small amount, only a couple of percentage points. It seems that there's a small number of people who, when they talk to pollsters, in essence, lie. Now, I'm not saying this is anything evil on their part, but simply that they're maybe a little embarrassed by their answer. Maybe it's not politically correct. So they say to people, I'm going to vote one way, when in fact they choose to vote another way. For instance, in the election between Hillary and Donald, a lot of people who, who wanted to vote for Donald Trump didn't want to say that out loud for fear of a pollster going, what? You're voting for who? So they might have said they were voting for Hillary, but then in the privacy of the booth, vote elsewhere. In this election, it plays both ways. There are some people who, who don't, for instance, like Mr. Uh, Trudeau very much, and would be embarrassed saying I'm putting him back in, so I'll say the politically correct thing that I'm voting for somebody else, and then vice versa. There are some people who aren't very happy with Mr. Shear thinking that he's Doug Ford Light in some way or another, so I don't want to say I'm doing that. This may all cancel out, but I'll be interested to see if we see that little 2% factor and why that's important in a very, very close election. A couple of percentage points can make the difference between a minority and even in some cases a majority or a close uh, swing uh, riding going one way or the other.
0: Exactly, and which is why these writings here in the Hamilton and Burlington area are gonna be so key to this as well. Let's just see if exactly. there's any flipping going on. Speaking of trying to predict uh, uh, voting results, the right. uh, General Motors are, are gonna attempt to ratify this thing. I, I'm hearing a lot of negative vibe about this, though, Marvin. Right? Right. So let's
4: take you back to last week. I think it was Thursday that we finally heard that GM and the United Auto Workers had struck a deal, uh, not unlike other uh, labor negotiations. They, oh, we can't tell you anything about the deal. It's all hush hush. But rather than immediately going back to work, the United Auto Workers said, we're going to remain on strike until we've had a, a tally of these votes. They first had to do education sessions where they... Told people what was in the contract. It's a four year contract. That's one of the things we've learned. So we have to tell you what's in the contract, and then you have to have time to vote. The vote tally is supposed to come in this Friday, October the 25th. Now, economically, what has leaked out is actually sounds like really great news apparently, and again, I don't know this personally, only through the leaks, uh, that in two of the four years, the workers are getting a 4% wage increase. In two of the years, they're getting a 3% wage increase. Well, that's well above the rate of inflation. I would think for people looking for catch-up, that's great news. As well, there's one of the largest signing bonuses I've ever heard of, I believe it's around $11,000 if they ratify this contract. That's right in your pocket, just immediately the day you ratify the deal. So economically, there's a lot of good reasons for the workers to say yes. But here's the problem. When the United Auto Workers went into this negotiation with GM, they said one of their key issues were the four American plants that GM planned to close. GM put on the table that, well, it's not really four plants. We're going to convert one of those plants into making electric trucks. So, you know, just bear with us, but we'll bring everybody back and we'll do electric trucks. Also, in another area, we're going to close that plant, but we're going to build another facility there that makes batteries, electric batteries, that we'll be using in all of our electric vehicles. The good and the bad news about that is, yes, there's going to be jobs in the area, but it's not going to be at the same level of employment. So there are some people losing their jobs. But for sure, GM said, we're closing two plants. And the United Auto Workers said, well, across our dead body, we're negotiating. So 34 days, 35 days, I think at this point, actually, they have been out and the deal they're taking to the workers does not see a reversal. Those two plants are still closing. The other plants are being retooled the way that was originally planned. And if I'm a worker in those areas, hey, I'm not going to vote for this deal. My job is gone. You're agreeing to my job being gone. Now, we think because it is just those two plants that probably those people voting against won't swing the day but we also use in the in the language of y- uh, of unions in general the idea that we're all brothers and sisters in the union so the real key question here is to what extent does a brother or sister whose job is not affected feel kinship to those who are being affected and would they vote against it we don't think that's going to happen we think likely a simple majority fifty percent plus one will vote in favor of the deal but as you said at the beginning it's not an absolute done deal at this point
0: because I've looked at some of the details on this too, as you say, that have been leaked out, and I assume these are, are legitimate details. Although you know, it's, there's all Who sorts knows? of speculation, right? But that's a pretty sizable size, size bonus. I mean, again, eleven grand in your pocket—that's got to be awfully tempting to people, even if they are ticked off at General Motors. Uh, money in the, in the in your bank account immediately like this is is a pretty strong incentive, I would think.
4: Well, it sure is, and then also looking forward to this three and four percent wage increase. You know, again, one of the arguments you know auto workers made was, look. GM, you're rolling in profits. We took a hit for you back in 2007 and 8. Now that you're so profitable, it's time you cough up some bucks for us. And it appears in this deal they have – one other thing, and I, I forgot to mention this earlier, that another thing that's been changed in this deal is the profit sharing. Apparently, in past years, uh, there was an uh, amount of profit sharing, but a cap. There was a maximum you could get if GM had a really good year, and they've changed that cap or maybe even removed it altogether so that when GM is profitable, the profit sharing is even stronger than it was before. E- economically, there are a 100 good reasons to sign the deal. But. But <laughs> if you vote in favor of the deal, you are saying to some of your brothers and sisters that their jobs are expendable, and, and this becomes that interesting dilemma. Do, what I, do I do what's best for me individually, or do I do what's best for the collective? Unions, after all, are a collective and, um, you know, as they've had these sessions across the country, and remember this is all about the United States, but there has been a little bit of pushback who are feeling that, you know, you're really pitting me who has a job against those who won't, and not everyone's happy about that.
0: I know that some of the uh, the union members, Marvin, have been uh, parroting Donald Trump's idea that, you know, we want to bring that, that production back. I mean, there are some plants in Mexico, and I, uh, Trump always is, is one of these guys yeah. that's saying, look, I want to close that plant down and bring it back into Ohio or wherever right. they want to do this sort of thing. How strong a feeling is that among the union membership themselves? I mean, I I, I don't see that happening. I know that there has been some transition from uh, from plants and some operations that have moved, but uh, I I don't see any mass move back to the states as, as, as some of these people are expecting.
4: Right. So let me come at that in two different directions if I can, Bill. First, the leadership of the union, when the negotiations began 35 days ago, said that was one of the things that was on the table, that to keep those two plants open that were going to close, bring us back some of the jobs from from, uh, Mexico, close those plants if you have to close something, keep the jobs here in the United States. After 35 days, the answer is that the leadership has caved in on that. They have agreed to a deal that what they're recommending that the workforce ratify does not see any transfer of those jobs back. They have looked at it. They held that out for a hope, but they said, look, I got all these other good things. I'm prepared to give up on this. Now the question is, is the rank and file of the same viewpoint? Certainly we know in Ohio, in Michigan, in um Indiana and Illinois, uh, what we sometimes describe as the Rust Belt, or at least the production belt of the United States, there are a lot of hard feelings about Mexico. There's a lot of hard feelings about jobs going there. And they blame not just the Mexicans, but about the American companies that have chosen to build brand new factories with state-of-the-art technology, but in Mexico rather than building them in the United States, and GM would be one of those for sure. So there are some of those hard feelings. But again, the question is, do I do what's best for me? (laughs) Do I say, well, I would prefer, but look, as long as I'm doing pretty well, what I prefer, I'm prepared to compromise. And this really puts the ball back in the workers' court. How upset are you really as long as you are well taken care of? And I think uh, I'm not trying to suggest that there's something nefarious here, but I think GM has done a great job of making a strong economic argument to people and saying, now, are you going to take and do, quote, the right thing, even if it costs you money? I think most workers are going to be uh, personal on this and say, if it helps me, that's the most important thing out there.
0: How is this impacting uh, this side of the border? I mean, I've heard they've had to cancel some shifts, and people on this side general Motors workers anyway, getting pretty antsy.
4: Oh, absolutely, Bill. It, it, it didn't happen day one, but within a week of the strike beginning 35 days ago, uh, plants were being idled. Uh, construction in Oshawa, for instance, of the plant uh, had to stop there. People were laid off there. In uh, the case of St. Catharines, uh, shifts were canceled. It wasn't the whole workforce, but a portion of the workforce was canceled because, obviously, again, with the supply chain being what it is, if you're not making vehicles there, you don't need the engines made here to be shipped there, or you can't get the parts here to do what you're doing there. So... Uh, you know, not just in Canada, but Mexico as well. They've seen plants shut down there. Everyone's been quite antsy about it. The, The Canadian brothers and sisters, the Mexican brothers and sisters, if you will, want to see uh, this thing ratified this is the longest strike we've seen GM have with its union in, in roughly 25 years um, and and to be laid off at this time with Christmas just around the corner it, it's not a happy time so there's a lot of good wishes here I can also note by the way that this deal that was struck by the, the auto workers uh, and GM will now be used in negotiation talk with uh, Ford and Chrysler yeah I wanted
0: to ask you about that because I mean we've seen this happen in the past uh, where the where the auto workers will target one company, right? And, and, and in this case, I, it was just This the contract is up and those weren't yet. But it serves as a template. Uh, how do Ford and, and, and Fiat Chrysler react to this? I mean, this? This is pretty heady stuff. And they may look at that and say, that's a little rich for us.
4: Yes. Well, that's an interesting point. So the template tends to be applied, the details sometimes are slightly different. Certainly, GM has been making record profits in these last few years, and that really is why I think uh, the United Auto Workers centered them out. Now, GM, excuse me, GM Ford and Chrysler are doing okay, thank you. They're not quite in the GM category. Um, so I will be interested to see when the United Auto Workers sits down with them. They will definitely be wanting wage increases. Whether they're going to hold out for the three and four, for instance, would two and three for each of the four years be enough to make them happy? I think they might be prepared to have slightly different wage increases there, because remember you have to also look at the benefits and and some of the other aspects going on there. But certainly, uh, if this gets ratified. Ford and Chrysler know what's coming, so they had better get their ducks in a row as well.
0: But every time there's a negotiation like this, I mean, the the workers are always anticipating, okay, we're going to get this, and maybe the bonus, and... But we always end up losing something or not getting something that you had hoped we were going to get. Uh, General Motors looks like they've ticked all the boxes here. I mean, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of, well, yeah, except for the plant closures. And I don't mean right. to diminish that. That's right. If you're one of the workers there, it's, that's a pretty big thing. Yeah. But but it, it just seems as if it's kind of an apples and oranges situation here because uh, Ford and Fiat Chrysler don't have the same uh, economic situation. They're not closing plants down, are they?
4: No. So they they don't seem to be doing that to the same extent. Now, remember, uh, just of the two companies, there's quite a difference. Uh, At the same time that General Motors faced bankruptcy protection in 2008, so did Chrysler. Chrysler went through the same thing, and that's ultimately when Fiat, the Italian company, came across and bought them and helped bail them out. Ford, on the other hand took all the hard steps they needed to avoid bankruptcy protection before they got into that trouble so we've always held them out as the better managed of the firms and they did the tough things there it seems again as they go forward that ford is in a a pretty strong position to get ready for this new type of car industry that's coming in five years whether that's electric vehicles or self-driving vehicles or some combination of the two ford has been well positioned there still the uh, union is going to go to them and ask them to give something. And and so I think if I'm Ford and and, uh, Chrysler, I know that I'm going to have to sweeten the pot. For whatever reason, though, uh, I think GM was forced to sweeten it even more because GM had actually sought concessions. Ford never asked for concessions 10 years ago. They held the line on wages, but they never asked people to roll some of this stuff back. For instance, in the case of GM, they said, okay, if you're a... Regular worker, and you've been here for some time, we're not changing it, but if we bring in any new workers, they'll only come in as part-time, and they'll come in at this lower, uh, wage status, and that'll help us with our wages. That, by the way, is all going away in this contract, as I understand it, if it gets ratified. So, Ford never did that. So, yes, there is a different situation. I don't think you know, the auto, auto workers will go to Ford with a, an absolute carbon copy of this contract and say sign and therefore I think the Ford deal will go well. Chrysler's the more interesting wrinkle here. Because you have the new owners out of Italy, uh, I don't know what their attitudes are towards the union situation they've got here. And I'm also not quite clear how strong they are. Because they bought the company, they also took it private. We're not getting the same information about how much success uh, Fiat Chrysler's having in all this. So I think these next two negotiations, and you'll see that play out in November and into December, they'll be very interesting to watch, too.
0: If they ratify this, and like you say, it only takes 50% plus one to do that, uh, how soon do things get back to normal? Because obviously, the, like on this side of the border, you know, we're thinking, okay, well, when are you going to get back to full production? When can we get back to full production? Right.
4: So I would say a couple of things. Clearly, uh, GM now feels they've got the right deal in front of the workers, and that this is just... Uh, if you will, overhead time that they've got to allow them to have the vote. So while this week is going on, management at GM is working on the idea of how fast can we restart the plants. Assuming a positive vote on Friday, it won't happen automatically, but I would think by Well, let's say Tuesday, Wednesday of next week, we may see all those plants back in production. Everyone called back, working, and and likewise, within another day or two, everything gets back to normal in the rest of the system, which means in Canada and Mexico. So this thing could all be resolved by this time next week or shortly after this time next week. If we get the positive vote on friday and and i don 't know to what extent the union is um, uh, sort of tallying these votes on a day by day basis, they might know internally whether things are going well or badly, and uh, I think if it was going badly, likely the union leadership would say to gm not so fast don't don 't get your plans going too far down the road because this isn 't looking good. Uh, on the other hand, if things are looking good, they might very well tell management, yeah plan because we 'd like those workers back working just as fast as we possibly can."
0: Well, we'll uh, find out on Friday, I guess, uh, just which way this is going to go. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. Glad to be here, Bill. Marvin Ryder at the uh, DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University.
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
0: The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.